it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. This episode, I'm starting with a little bad news. Today, this episode is the season finale of Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And let me clarify, season finale, not series finale. I know, I know this season has gone by so fast. Well, maybe for y'all, it's been a long ass season for me and I is tired It's just time to take a little hiatus and then we'll, of course, come back stronger than ever for season four. And I'll announce that date in the future. But before I get to the word of the week, I want to thank everybody who came out to the Roots Picnic last week in Philadelphia in Philadelphia for the live podcast event on the podcast stage. It was a great crowd, great atmosphere, beautiful day. Dawn Staley came through for an amazing conversation, which you all will get to hear next season. We have a lot of great content from the picnic, which was just sensational. I mean, so many amazing performers, SWV, Keisha Cole, Moo Moo Fresh, Mary J. Blige, The Roots themselves, Rick Ross, Music Soul Child. It was a time. And make sure you check out the Jamel Hill is Unbothered Instagram account. A lot of photos and videos from the picnic are there. And while I'm reminding you to follow things and to look at uh, certain accounts, make sure that you're following Jamel Hill is Unbothered on the Spotify platform. All right. For the last time this season, let's do the word of the week, which is life. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. Now, I don't usually get too invested in celebrity relationships, but a part of me is a little sad that Michael B. Jordan and Lori Harvey have reportedly broken up. They were just so cute together. But, you know, everything isn't meant to go the distance. But what I couldn't help but notice is how many men seem to be camped out in their feelings over this breakup. Like they were so invested and the misogyny was just everywhere. They just couldn't contain it. I swear Lori Harvey and Sierra just bring out the ashes. The men who call Lori Harvey all kind of hoes and tramps and harlots and thoughts, knowing full well they would shit their pants if that woman even blinked at them. Knowing full well that they're talking all this nonsense about Lori Harvey and they still out here getting in their bed at night with dingy ass tube socks. But I'm going to leave that alone. Lori Harvey is 25 years old. She's gorgeous, an influencer. She is dating who she chooses. And her vagina is not our business. At 25, this is kind of what you do. You date. You see what you like. You find out what you don't like. You want to experience some of these things in your 20s because the worst thing that can happen is you get into your 30s or maybe even later than that. You settle down, you get married or just get in a long term relationship and you have regrets because you didn't live a healthy single life in your 20s because now you're obsessed with regret for the things you didn't get to do. And let me start by just saying, no, I'm not talking about all men, but why does it seem like so many men are bothered by women who aren't killing themselves to be married or who don't think marriage should be the end goal or at least not the end goal at 25 years old? 
Studies continue to show that women are either choosing to get married much later in life or not at all. Of course, there are still plenty of women who want to be married, but those numbers are kind of dwindling. Men are generally encouraged to explore their single life to the fullest. They are given the opposite information when it comes to dating. Men act like they're being sent off to a firing squad when one of their boys is getting married. Now, here's my theory, which you are free to entertain or call bullshit. I think the real reason some men are bothered by Lori Harvey's dating life is because it kind of scares them. Now, every woman certainly doesn't have the resources or the abs that Lori Harvey has, but the way she seems to date, and I say seems to because we don't know this woman, but she seems to be pretty unapologetic about her shit. This is a mentality that makes some men a little insecure. Some are just not accustomed to women who don't waste their prime years waiting around for some man to pick them for marriage. This, of course, is after he has belonged to the streets and had the time of his life. Some men are threatened by confident women. They fear they won't be needed as much. Whatever experience she has collected away from them is a problem because, you know, a lot of dudes want women who behave like hoes in the bedroom without um, her actually getting any experience that would enable one to perform in such a manner. All I know is I've loved seeing Michael B. Jordan and Lori Harvey together. Only they know what has happened in their relationship. And a lot of us have been in long relationships before that didn't end in marriage. Listen, I know Michael B. came strong, renting out the aquarium, getting her lavish gifts, but her not being with him is not some indication that a nice guy wasted his time or even that she wasted her time. Sometimes shit just doesn't work out and it may not be anybody's fault. That's life. Our word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. Today's guest is a perfect way to end this season because he is literally one of my favorite people, my play cousin, one of the nicest, most genuine athletes I've ever covered. And I'm fortunate enough to call a friend. He also was one of the best college players ever. And because of some unfortunate and untimely injuries, he never had the NBA career he should have had. But those first six years or so he was in the league, the narrative was, and I'm not putting extra sauce on this, the narrative was that he was going to replace Michael Jordan as the face of the league. He was that good, that marketable, and that much of a global superstar. When his NBA playing career days were done, he became a NBA and college basketball analyst. And since 2015, he's been part of the league broadcasting team for the NCAA men's basketball tournament. Beyond his basketball and broadcast achievements, he's also become an incredible businessman. He's a very serious African-American art collector and... Oh, by the way, he happens to be married to one of the best R&B voices in the game. Now we can add author to his esteemed list of accomplishments. He's got a new book out called Game, an autobiography that's very good. We're going to talk about that and a lot more. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Grant Hill. So uh, 
I can't call you cousin anymore because now I have a different last name because I'm married. <laughs> so you're not cousin Grant anymore, Grant, but I still consider you like family. So thanks so much for joining me here on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. And uh, I'll tell you what, back back in the day before you were big time, like big, big time, <laughs> you know, yeah, whatever. I, I knew you when you were, you know, you were on the way. You were, what was that Jay-Z lyric? Bubble before I blow. It's the, I don't know. I can't remember. But you were you were bubbling back in the day when we were cousins. You knew me when I was a young pup. That's right. <laughs> That's, That's for right. sure. That's right. Uh, it was such a pleasure, by the way, to read uh, your memoir, Game. And uh, for as much as I think people think that they know about you because, you know, you've been kind of front and center uh, since the early 90s. You know, you, you've had such a high profile. It was amazing to read like even more details of how you, um, you know, your journey and your life. And we'll, we'll dig into that though. Not too much because the memoir drops June 7th and everybody needs to go buy it. Um, but I'm going to start the podcast by asking you a question that I ask every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is unbothered. And that is, when did you become unbothered? I don't know. Um, I, I think I probably spent a journey. You know, I think, I think probably towards the end of my time in Orlando, so coincidentally around the time we met, but uh, yeah, I, I think at that point you'd been through enough ups and downs and experience where you're, you're comfortable being unbothered uh, or, you know, cause I think to be unbothered and certainly we define unbothered uh, a multitude of ways, but I think when you're comfortable getting uncomfortable, you're comfortable being unbothered, you're uncomfortable exercising or using your voice, whatever that might be. So I, I'd say around that time, I was probably mid, early to mid thirties. That sound right? Yeah, no, that, that, that sounds about right. But um, it's sort of surprising though, because one of the better stories that you tell, you tell a lot of great stories in, in your memoir, but one of the funnier ones is the one that you tell about how, when you were at Duke and you were upset over a medical diagnosis, <laughs> which unfortunately became a theme that you went out in public with a Carolina hat on. Now that's unbothered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Cause you were upset about some of the, the things that were happening behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I forgot. you're right. Um, you know, I mean, I think a lot of that was emotion and, um, but yeah, I mean, look, I, now that you say that, I guess you're right. Cause I, you know, it's funny, even before that the year before that, I had this T-shirt a friend bought me and it said, no white lady, I don't want your purse. And I used to wear that shirt all the time. And this was my second year, my sophomore year. And, you know, we win the championship. We beat Michigan. Um, and then we go to Beach Week. At Duke, they used to have like after finals, you had a week before graduation. So everybody would go to Myrtle Beach. We used to call it Dirty Myrtle. And uh, we'd go down to Myrtle Beach and I had that shirt. And so I'm wearing the shirt and somehow, some way, someone took a picture and it ended up on the front page of the Durham Herald. Durham Herald. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I remember Laura Ann uh, Kidd, who's now Laura Ann Howard, was the administrative assistant. Crazy. She's still there at Duke at the basketball office. But she told me then that like all these people were calling up upset that I was wearing that shirt. So, yeah, I guess to be that kind of bold and. But, you know, I was listening to a lot of public enemy back then. So that, that was part of it. I understand. Uh, I overstand with that. But it is it as I was reading that, as you were telling the story about you wearing that Carolina hat out because you were you were upset. 
I was like, man, he is so glad social media didn't exist. <laughs> Dude, you had to move. Like, <laughs> you know, you know what's crazy is that there's no evidence of that. Like, there's no picture. That's stunning. Stunning. To kind of lay the groundwork. I'm at an all-night graduation party uh, for Durham County Schools. I'm like, I don't know, the ambassador or whatever. And I'm wearing this hat. And the book gets into a lot of the reasons why and sort of my act of defiance. But uh, and I'm not saying I was right in doing that. But, you know, you're 19, you're 20, you're managing a bunch of different things. And there's no evidence uh, of, of me, thankfully, uh, of doing that. And you're right. If that happened now, it's a whole whole different world that these student athletes are in right now. But, yeah, that's good. OK, that's, that's right. You're right. So you, you got me. I was bold. I forgot about that. I was, it must have been the flat top back then. Who knows? <laughs> well, as bold and defined as, as you could be at times, there was a particular passage or sentence you wrote in your book that really surprised me because you wrote, uh, I was good, probably too good at projecting a level of confidence that didn't match my insides. I think it would be shocking for most people to learn that there were times in your life, especially we see how good you were as a basketball player, that you struggled a little bit with self-confidence. Where do you think the root of those struggles were? You know, I, I did struggle. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know where the, I mean, there's no, you know, my parents were obviously achievers and uh, always tried to, you know, create a, an, an environment for me to grow up in where, you know, I can do anything and positive. And I mean, there was no sort of trauma that I can think of, but Maybe there was intimidation because of them, you know, because I always looked at at them as just being like super intelligent, well-spoken, just achievers. And, and I struggled with that confidence and struggled with confidence in a sport that I was pretty dominant in. And so I do think as an athlete, you know, you put on your armor, you know, you go to the park and you get ready to play and you, you might be playing with older people or against talented people. And so you create this aura, you know, it's it's, it's almost like, it's probably a bad analogy, but it's like the matador going in the ring with the bull and you project this confidence and regal and, you know, probably deep down inside, they're scared and they understand, you know, one mess up and, and you can be killed. And so I think I was good at projecting and presenting an air of confidence. But in, in basketball, you had to do that. Like you have to do, you have to always, and sometimes you can, you can project it enough to where you convince yourself that you can you can accomplish a task or you can do whatever. But yeah, that, that was my struggle. Like I, I didn't believe I was good enough. Whereas some people's belief surpasses their talent. And in a way that belief elevates their talent. You know, I think it was it was probably reversed a little bit with me. And um I, I haven't unpacked it enough to really know why, but it all kind of came to a head maybe, you know, when I got to Detroit and sort of but I do think sports played a role in developing confidence because sports is such a, you know, results based, immediate. Every possession, you're being judged, you're being evaluated. And, you know, a lot of other people, a lot of industries, work, whatever you might do, it might be more sawing wood, getting results over time. But in sports, every possession, either one of you lost, you know. And I think when you put together enough wins, it builds up your confidence in who you are. And so, I think sports played a role in, in building that up in a lot of ways for me. As I learned of from firsthand experience, writing a memoir is not easy. Mine is coming out later this year. And uh, because you go back through moments, maybe some of which you've buried a little bit, 
and it takes you through a bit of an emotional journey. So for you, what was it like emotionally for you to write this memoir? It was tough. And I'm glad you brought that up. I think for me, the injuries and the setbacks and and that was something that um, I don't think I dealt with in real time. You know, I think as an athlete, you know, one thing I think I put in there, but, you know, Coach K used to always talk about next play. And when you play, whether you did something incredible or you messed up on the court, you know, move on to the next play. And part of it was staying present. Um, you know, you stay present, you're able to perform, you can get in the zone, whatever the case may be. But I kind of lived my life that way. And, and what I mean by that is I didn't allow myself in a lot of ways to feel some of the incredible highs, but also some of the incredible lows. And in Detroit, in my early years, I had great individual success, but we weren't winning. So I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. Like I didn't celebrate the good moments. It was constantly chasing, chasing Isaiah, you know, or chasing the bad boys or chasing whatever. And so until I got there, I didn't allow myself to enjoy it and have fun and feel it and therefore didn't appreciate those moments like I should. And then conversely, the injuries, it was constantly, you know, and maybe sometimes you suppress things just for survival. I mean, I know people who've gone through some, some extreme trauma and that that's something that's very real. I don't want to equate my injury with that, you know, particularly with something, someone's childhood. But I think to get through those injuries, I kept, okay, what do I got to do? All right. Next day. All right. All this crutch walking, I'm going to be stronger when I get back. Like it was this constant looking ahead. All right. I'm going to make up for it. I'm going to play till I'm 40. By the way, I hurt my knee my last year with the Clippers the day I turned 40. And so I should have said 45, but I think not feeling that. So there were some dark moments. There were some dark moments as I'm, you know, trying to recall that. And as you said, when you're writing your memoir, you, you're going back and you're living in a moment. We all reflect. We have, you know, a song might come on and might conjure up a memory. You might go back home. and But like to actually live in a space and think about something. Okay, what was I thinking at this particular moment when it happened? And then also, the interesting part of looking at it now from an older perspective. It's really a fascinating exercise. I think you learn a little bit about yourself, but it can be emotional. And, and I had to unpack some things that I didn't even really know were there, you know, and, and, and really a lot of it surrounding my career, you know, feeling like it was incomplete. I didn't really get a chance to see it all the way through. Some bitterness towards some medical professionals, all of that. So, you know, from that standpoint, I think it was healthy, but it wasn't easy. Your journey um, in talking about your injuries, like, you know, we see athletes, they get hurt all the time, but you went through something far more severe because you almost died from a staph infection that developed as a result of the ankle surgeries uh, that you had had. I think a lot of people were very happy and pleased, like once you were able to kind of overcome some of that. But even now, are you stuck with any physical limitations from that time because of what you went through? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I have an arthritic ankle and um, I, what does that mean? I, I, I can't run. I can't jump. Not that I really have any need or desire to do any of the two, but yeah, I mean, it hurts. It, it's I'm putting off or trying to do everything possible to put off, you know, a joint replacement or, an ankle fusion surgery. Some may say my ankle is already fused, but, you know, in some ways I ask myself if, 
if I had known I would have felt this way years later, would I have put myself through it? And sometimes, you know, I'm like, no question. Like, I love the game. You want to play as long as you can. But the pain, like, I mean, just, you know, you know, I'll be 50 this year. And, you know, to me and I started doing this in my wife, to me, uh, I want to assume everybody knows who she is, but we're, we're familiar, Grant. We're familiar. <laughs> Okay, I'm just, you know, I, I know you are. I know you are. I got a story about you and Tabia. People may not know, but um, I started going for walks, and you know, I started doing five thousand steps, and then ten. So you know, I get competitive, and so now I did like twenty-seven thousand steps before ten a.m. and like my ankle for three weeks, I, it was killing me. And, and so just even walking on a flat surface. So that's the trade-off, you know. Uh, I remember Monty Williams once said, if if you really commit to the game and 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 give it your all and have a lengthy career, you're going to pay for it at some point down the road. I didn't think I'd pay for it so soon. And a year or two out of playing, my ankle, you know, I was done running. Like I couldn't any kind of anything, jumping, running, even just getting up in the morning, like those first few steps um, can be painful. So, you know, trying to play golf, which I'm terrible at. But that's about it for me when it comes to sports right now. You hinted at uh, uh, me and Tamia and how we know each other, I guess, to give people some background. Um, when I first got to Orlando as a sports columnist, the first big story I did was on you and Tamia. And it was just so funny to me because, of course, you know, I, I remind people that journalism, especially mainstream journalism, is very white. And they were not aware really of who Tamia was, you know, some of the editors at the paper, like they knew she was right, an right. R&B singer. I was like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. She won a Grammy when she was like nine. No. <laughs> right? It was later than that. But still, I was like, she has been a big superstar. And me being from Detroit and her being from Windsor, obviously, I was very, very familiar. But don't tell the story about uh, I know the story you want to tell. Don't tell that story. Okay. I'm going to save it because I do I will, I will tell. a segment in the middle of this podcast called I got a story to tell, but because you're into TV, Grant, you know that's called a tease. Right. So I'm going to make people wait to the middle of this podcast and then they will hear uh, the full story um, from me. Now, speaking of Tamia, like obviously for a lot of professional athletes, it seems like the trying times that can sometimes come in marriages are through injury and retirement. <laughs> okay. Because suddenly you sort of have to relearn each other because you've retired. Um, you, you, you mentioned that you had some dark moments when you were going through this lengthy injury um, fight that you had. What kind of impact did you feel like that had on you and Tamia's marriage? I think the marriage actually helped me get through it. And I don't, I don't think I was consciously aware of it in real time, but um, I think, you know, it, it, first of all, we get married and then, you know, it was it sickness and through health and we tested that vow. But yeah, I mean, I think having your partner, having your wife, um, your spouse, I think to help you get through it, to distract you, and then, you know, starting a family and then being a parent, that provided some balance that was needed. And uh, and also a sense of purpose and a sense of what's real uh, or what's what's important, I guess. So I don't I don't think I I understood it at the time, but I think looking back at it, having her strength, you know, and her uh, and then her life and her career and and her perspective. And, you know, sometimes you come home, but, you know, she didn't care. I mean, she, you know, she cared, but she didn't like, you know, you have other things you're you're worried about. You know, it's, 
you're gonna get the diapers over here. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna change this baby and and and, and all of that. So all, all of that, we were a new sort of newlywed going through, you know, an incredible strain, as you said, with an injury. I never looked at that injuries and, and retirement. And then she, you know, she not to tell her story, but she went through some some health uh, issues, and and that really kind of inspired me, just sort of seeing how you know how she attacked that and how you know, hearing about that news and, and what that, not knowing or not being totally informed of what MS is and then how she went about that and being a, you know, a, a, a wife, a, a mother, a career woman, uh, still staying active. So that helped me get through it in a lot of ways. And then years, you know, when I was writing the book and, and probably during COVID and now all these things for me are resurfacing and I'm dealing with and I'm sharing. And she was like, you know, I'm glad that you're human because I, I was like, I'm sitting there watching you go through this and you were just like a machine and you were just, and, and so it was, it was interesting to hear her perspective on going through some of that, but it bothered me more than I thought it did. I thought, okay, I overcame it. I move on nine years playing post-injury. That's great. But I think deep down subconsciously it, it, it you know, this is a thing that i I did really well and I was dominated and I was on a trajectory and I didn't get a chance to see that through. And, and that was hard to, to accept, but 20 years later, like that's what was crazy. But yeah, she, she has helped me all the way through, particularly going through that period of time. And um, it, it wasn't easy for me. And it, look, the bottom line is, and you brought up, you brought her up. I don't think spouses of professional athletes get enough credit. And just how difficult that can be. I think we all see the the perks that come with it. And there's some perks. And, and obviously, we all are aware of those. But I think, one, having uh, a career. And, and, and most spouses aren't, aren't R&B singers. But, you know, let's say you're a doctor, a lawyer, whatever it is you want to do. Like, all of a sudden, there's always that threat of being traded, signing someplace else. And so... I think a lot of times work can give you a sense of purpose and you can get lost sometimes in, 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 in your spouse's shadow, if you will. You know, my wife, you know, I'll be honest with you. She didn't want to leave Detroit. And I've heard people say or imply that, you know, we left Detroit because she wanted to pursue her music career. But Orlando is not the place to go if you're an R&B singer. I was going to say, it's not like Orlando is like the second coming of Motown. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, okay, we go like, to Atlanta no. or New York or L.A. Yeah. And then her from, you know, her being from, you know, from up there, you know, from Windsor, like she, I think, actually enjoyed le leaving L.A. to come back to Detroit. And then all of a sudden, you know, we, we moved to Orlando. So but I mean, that, that's just like, you know, then all of a sudden one day I'm like, hey, I want to go to Phoenix. And she's like, I've never been to Phoenix. So I just, I don't know. I just, I feel like there's a sacrifice that the spouses go through that a lot of people, fans out there don't fully understand or, or, or appreciate. And, uh, and certainly, you know, she was, as my mom would say, she was nurse Betty through a lot of it. And funny story. I know it's kind of graphic, but um, you know, when you're on crutches a lot, like I was for four years, you know, you have those portable urinals. And so she used to hate to have to dump them out. And so once I finally got healthy, I was like, oh, this is convenient. I want to keep the urinal. 
And she was like, no. And so every time I bought one, she somehow it would disappear. That's marriage. That's what you signed up for is that you signed up for those moments where a portable urinal may be involved. <laughs> you know? it, it put a lot of strain on our marriage. That's that's for sure. <laughs> now, um, speaking of which, and, and just talking about you guys is, is marriage. Um, you'll appreciate this it, as the time we're recording this. I just left Las Vegas where I saw Anita Baker in concert who famously hooked you guys up. But what I didn't know about your origin story with Tamia is that the first time you talked to her was in a club. I mean, you weren't actually at the club. She was at the club where some of your friends were and you got on the phone, convinced her somehow that you were actually you. (laughs) Okay. And then, you know, you guys went on a date the next day and and sort of things happened from there. What the hell did you say to her on the phone that would get her to actually one, believe it was you and two, go out on a date with you on top of that? I know it's crazy because, you know, we had just lost in the playoffs. We lost to Orlando 96. And so, you know, at that point, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to be out and about. I didn't want to go to Legends. Shout out to Legends. (laughs) Detroiters know. (laughs) That was my spot. Um, But nah, so. Maybe a couple of weeks later, my boys, they were they were, they went to this uh, this party. It was I think Andre Harrell was throwing a party, the late Andre Harrell. And uh, unbeknownst to all of us, Tamia was there as a, as a judge for a talent show. And uh, obviously, at that point, I knew who she was. I didn't know that Anita had planted a seed and mentioned me to her because I met Anita. And Anita then met her like a week later at the Soul Train Awards and and so I was telling Anita, you got to hook me up with somebody. Well, actually, Anita was being nosy and like, you know, you date somebody and, you know, and I'm just like, I'm not going to find who I want and, you know, blah, 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 whatever. And so I'm not thinking anything of it. So, yeah, my friend called me. He's like, yo, that girl to me is here. And he gives her the phone. Now, knowing her and you know her, like, first of all, I can't believe she just took somebody's phone and randomly talked to him. And we spoke. It was loud. It was like an after party. And then I remember I told my buddy, I was like, hey, man, like, give her my number and keep her away from, you know, so-and-so. And so I didn't think anything of it. So they come back afterwards. We're in the house just chilling, listening to music. And she calls. And and so then we talk until, you know, until until morning, basically. We talk, you know, and so that that's a good first sign, you know. But then we set up, you know, a date. I'm going to pick her up in Windsor. We're going to go to Greektown and go to um, Fishbones, and then go see a movie. And so I remember I'm driving over, and I'm like, how does she, like, she still doesn't know that it's me. Some random dude gave her a phone at a party and put me on the phone with her, and now here we are. So anyway, I mean, whatever I said, I don't know what I said, but it worked, and, um, you know, here we are 26 years later. Is that right? 26 years later, which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was like, man, he must have been spitting some hella game. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that's funny. That's I was funny. Like, she, yeah, she you, had to be, you had to be spitting something. So it uh, it obviously worked. I mean, I know that you all because uh, I, I loved your Black Love episode that you guys did. I know you get asked a lot about your secret and your keys to marriage because you guys have been married so long and to be two high profile people, it's even harder to do. But if you had to pinpoint a couple of things where you felt like have really been beneficial to you um, and staying committed and being married, what would you say, say those were? Yeah. You know, we did the black love series and it's funny because 
I don't know. You, uh, we've watched the series. It's a great series. I think they do a great job with it. But I feel like we're, we're essentially winging it. I mean, everyone think, okay, black love and you guys this and relationship goals. What are y'all doing? Man, we don't know. We're just like literally like, I mean, I, I'll say this. Every relationship is different. And, you know, my parents been married 50 plus years and how they live, how they interact, how they deal with money, like all is very different than how to me and I work. And so I think for us, we're in sort of unusual professions and professions that have an element of glamour and excitement and, and whatever you want to call it. But we're not like we're, we're actually pretty simple. We're homebodies. Um, we don't do a whole lot. We, I think, enjoy being at home. And I think that like we talked earlier about balance. I think I think that gives us balance. It gives us stability. It gives us a foundation. You know, one thing I, I, I realized with her, and I learned this from her early on, here she is, young, attractive, talented um, young lady going out to L.A., you know, pursuing her career. And that's a crazy world. And she had it all figured out when we met. And she knew then like, this is crazy. This isn't real. This isn't something that I want to like consume me where I'm caught up. Like, I'm like, oh man, this is like, I'm out here in LA. Like I'm, you know, and, and, and she was the least bit caught up. And so, yeah, I, I just think making, you know, family a priority, things that are real. You know, my parents, this is probably bad. My parents used to call us the boring couple. They're like, man, y'all don't do nothing. Like, you know, y'all just stay at home. Like, and so, you know, I mean, that that's what we like to do. We, you know, she wants to go tour and do shows and put music out. That's fine. And, you know, I'm, I got, you know, I'm, a, I'm half Jamaican. I got a, a six, seven, eight jobs. And, but I just like to be home, the kids, each other. It just gives you a solid foundation. And, but, you know, communication, I, I think one of the things is being, you know, I've learned to be more vulnerable and I think learn that intimate is not just physical and intimate is also sharing and this notion of like being strong and being a man and, you know, and holding it in and always projecting strength. But I think I've learned even in recent years to share my insecurities, my flaws. And I think that just creates a greater level of intimacy. So we're not who we were 26 years ago. You grow, you evolve, and you hope and pray that you grow and evolve together. Um, but I think, you know, I miss mean, just a number of things. I, I don't have the answers, but I think it's something that you intentionally work on every day and you make it a priority. And um, sometimes you get on each other's nerves. Uh, sometimes she's like, don't you have a game to call or something? Or, you know, and, and uh, don't you, you know, um, but, you know, we, we've somehow, some way, we're here almost at, at 23 years of marriage, which is crazy. Um, one uh, final question before we take a quick break. Do you think it was helpful, the fact that you you are both in very glamorous worlds? I mean, you the world of a professional athlete, the world of um, a singer, like there's very there's a lot of similarities. Do you think that was more helpful than anything because you had an innate understanding of what each other's world was kind of like? Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I think I think, um, you know, essentially you're performing, you know, you're both. I mean, you know, obviously competition is is different, but, you know, there's a performance element to that. And so I, I think an understanding of all the pressures that come with that, of being on, of, of you know, going to dinner, people interrupting, like just whatever, all, all that goes into that. 
not saying it can't work if, if you don't have that, but, but yeah, I think that's helped us on this journey. And, um, I'd like to think I've helped like I'm like her unofficial A and R, um, you know, but she doesn't really give me a whole lot of credit for, you know, <laughs> you don't have a producer credit or any of her albums. <laughs> nah, nah, you know, I mean, in my, in my own head, in my own mind, I'm, I'm a producer, but no, I mean, it's, it's been good. It, it's, it's, I think she's trusted my instincts as it relates to her career. I haven't always trusted hers. I learned to trust hers because at the end of the day, you're on a team. It's about people. It's managing people. You know, you may not get into the X's and O's and, you know, babe, how am I going to guard Kobe? You know, and it, to me, it would have been like, yeah, hey, good luck. You know, like that's, you know, but, but in terms of managing people, egos, things that come up throughout the course of a season, I think over time I learned to trust her instincts. Uh, she definitely trusted mine from the jump uh, as it related to her career and, and or at least listened to me. I wouldn't say always trusted me, but listened. And so that, that partnership, that balance has, has, been, has served us well. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break because I definitely want to ask you about Myla, Miss MMA. <laughs> I know, right? I can't be easy for you, but I know she got her, her she won her first bout, I think last year, right? Uh, so uh, I know as a father, that is probably giving you a few more grades than you would probably like. So definitely want to uh, talk about her and uh, just a couple more things from the book, because you you tell a great um, two great coincidental stories about Tupac and Biggie that I want to ask you about. So uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more with Grand Hill. So early in the podcast, Grant gave you all a tease that I had a story to tell involving Tamia. So let me break that down for you right now. I moved to Orlando to work as a columnist for the Orlando Sentinel in 2005. You guys have heard me talk about that before. When I first got there, though, I pitched a story on Tamia because from what I'd been able to tell, they had barely written about her other than passing mentions that Grant Hill was married to some woman who sang R&B. I'm being a little tongue in cheek, but it was pretty clear that a few of the editors I worked with, most of which were white men, had no real idea who Tamia was. They didn't know about you put a move on my heart, missing you, spend my life with you with Eric Benet. By the time Grant was playing in Orlando, she'd already been nominated for a Grammy five times. Now, even though I didn't know Tamia that well, and at the time, Grant and I had only met once, and this is when I was an intern at the Plain Dealer in Cleveland, and Grant was on the U.S. Olympic basketball team, and they just came to Cleveland for an exhibition. So when I say met, I just literally mean that I was in an interview scrum with a bunch of other sports reporters, and I asked them questions. So met might be too strong of a word. A friend of mine in Orlando had a relationship with Grant and Tamia's publicist. And after an introduction and a couple phone conversations with the publicist, I was able to land an interview with Tamia. Now, my assumption was that the interview would take place at some traditional interview location, maybe in an office, maybe over lunch. But instead, Tamia invited me to meet her in studio where she was working on her new album, uh, which was called Between Friends. Now, this is right after she split with Atlantic Records. So this was her first independent project. I walked into the studio and I was a little intimidated. 
I'd never been inside of a recording studio before. I also wasn't sure what the proper protocol was. Like, how should I act? Where should I sit? Uh, as a journalist, you just hope to be a fly on the wall sometimes and just observe. I introduced myself to Tamia and her producer, and then I just kind of got out of the way and watched them work. It was just so fascinating seeing them put a song together right in front of me. And let me tell y'all something. Tamia can sing. Notice I didn't say sing. She can sing. Her voice is absolutely incredible. So I'm just kind of sitting there taking it all in, writing down some notes that maybe I can reference when I finally got to writing the piece. I'm just minding my journalistic business when Tamia asked me if I wouldn't mind stepping into the recording booth. Now, that's when I had to remind her that when I sing, I sound like a combination of a duck and a screaming baby. But as she explained, she had no intention of allowing me to sing. I wasn't about to do backup. She instead wanted me to use my journalistic flavor on a song she has called Happy, which is a bop, by the way. Take a listen. Is it a good time for this? Is it a good time to be having a baby right now? Well, hopefully my fans will understand that it is a part of life and um, see how happy my husband and I are about um, having a baby and 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 understand that, you know, this is part of my story and, and grow with me. I've been signed since I was 17 years old and I'm growing up and, you know, got married and um, it's it's what happens. Your girl got bars, at least journalistic ones. And now back to more with Grant Hill. So, Grant, you were saying before the the break that, you know, she trusted your instincts or at least heard you out in terms of her career. Uh, You had to develop into that just because, you know, they're by nature very different types of careers. So do you guys possess the level of honesty where if you're having a bad game or had a bad game, she'd be like, hey, babe, you kind of suck tonight. <laughs> or if you don't like a song of hers that she's maybe considering for an album or whatever it may be, do y'all have the level of honesty where you can say that to one another? Maybe a little gentler. So Tamia is blunt. And um, like that's something about her. She is very blunt to the point, not going to sugarcoat anything. I'm probably the one that's going to finesse things a little bit more. I, you know, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, we can be. It's funny because, you know, I joke about this. I used to look up in the crowd. Well, when I was in Detroit, you know, I had, I had I had floor seats. And then, you know, by the end, I'm in Phoenix and, you know, seats are a little bit higher up. Um, it's making a little bit of different money at that point. But, you know, she'd come to the game and something would happen. I might do something. You know, I might have a dunk or whatever and crowds going crazy. And I look up like she's just sitting there like, I'm only here because I'm supposed to be here. Like, you know, like I could be doing a zillion other things in this. And so now then with my kids, you go to these games, she's the loudest one there yelling and screaming. Like she's the one where, okay, calm down. You know, like it's going to be okay. Like they're eight, like just relax. You know, it's not the end of the world. And so I'm like, who are you? I mean, look, I'm a consumer. So with music, she she's trying to appeal to someone like me who wants to listen to her music. So I think sometimes industry folk can get caught up in being industry. 
And, uh, and so I, I'll be straight up with her. Like, I like this. I don't like it. I think this should be the first single. Uh, sometimes I've won on that. Sometimes I've lost. Yeah. I mean, I think we can be blunt. I'm probably more blunt with her about music than she is with me about sports. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, you know, you got to be honest with each other, you know, and I think you learn to sort of respect each other's thoughts and opinion. Look, I know her as well as anyone. And, you know, I don't pretend to know music and have all the right answers, but I know what I like, you know, I know what I want to buy. And I, I think I know what her fans like. So, uh, so yeah, she, we're definitely, you know, I, she probably shares with me more than I share with her. And that's something I'm doing, a, I'm trying to do a better job of. Well, yeah, we can be honest to a fault. Along those same lines, was there anything in the book that she learned or didn't know about you? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I think a lot of the stuff that happened, some of the stuff that happened before we met and just that journey and some of those, and some of which she heard before, but look, she didn't go to college. And she was, you know, signed by Quincy Jones at 18, 19. So she was, she didn't go to college. So she never quite, I think, understood that relationship you have with your alma mater. You know, you're going to do anything for Michigan State. You went there, great years. Wasn't always perfect, but that's where you grew and you matured and relationships for all of that. So she never quite understood that. And one of the things we did, I got, we got married and I ended up giving a million dollars to Duke, to Duke basketball. And I didn't tell her about it mistake you shouldn't do as a newlywed. And um, and not that I was consciously withholding it from her. I just forgot. Like, I'm, I can be absent-minded. You too, Rich Grant. Like, when you can forget about it, <laughs> forget to no, tell no, somebody I mean, about a million dollars. No, I'm just saying, I mean, I mean no, okay. I know. I'm, I'm not trying to floss anything. I'm just saying, I gave money and I didn't tell her. And so we're at Monty Williams and his late wife, Ingrid Williams. We're at the house and Sports Center's on. And it, the, the announcement comes across and she's looking at me like, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Like, and so I think that combined with not like she didn't understand this whole relationship I had with Duke. And, you know, she would indulge me. We'd go back. We'd go to games, you know, this. But she never quite felt what you and I felt and a lot of other folks felt. And so I think reading the book and reading about those years, I just think she understood how unique and special. And she didn't see it. She didn't watch it. So she wasn't a fan of basketball or at least she said she wasn't. So she didn't quite understand it. But I think, you know, those Duke years and then some of my, like some of those insecurities, like that being vulnerable, like talking about your lack of confidence and and being shy and questioning and sort of that coming of age sort of thing. She kind of got me, you know, at, you know, I won't say at a finished product, but, you know, closer to who I am. But it, it was a journey to get to that point. And um, like, for example, on a confidence thing, at that time, if I had been there, we probably never would have connected because I would not have had the confidence to initiate a conversation with her. Not that I would have sent somebody, but and it wasn't on some ego where she got to come to me like, you know, if she wanted to talk to me. she got. But it was just like I didn't have that. Even then, I didn't have that kind of confidence. And at this point, I'm a three, two time all star. Like I'm, you know, life is pretty good. But. I think it, it it manifested in a in a number of different ways, and uh, so thankfully I didn't go that night, and, and my friend made that connection. So, uh, you know, beyond Tabia, were there any other conversations you had to have with people about your book, about what might be in there, things you might have said? Did you go through that? No, I do think 
I was worried. I'm still kind of worried about Coach K because some of that stuff, I don't think he's even aware of. You know, look, I was there at a, at a very interesting time. Duke basketball was becoming a thing. It was becoming loved and I guess also hated at the same time. And I think everyone looks at it as like it was, it was like a perfect four years. And, you know, it wasn't all rainbows and lollipops. And I think that's natural. And so to talk about some of those things that I experienced and at least what I, what I saw or what I interpreted, I'm not sure he saw that or was aware of it. And then I was also unsure if people would take that the wrong way. But I think, I feel like that's normal. Like any, you know, you talk like, you know, look, the bad boys, I mean, you're from Detroit and those guys were at each other's throat. Like those guys hearing stories and, 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 but they, you're able to put that aside and go out and, and, and get the job done. And so uh, the tension that's there sometimes between a player and a coach, I felt like that's being authentic and I had to be real and talk about it. And now our relationship grew from some of that adversity, but he was the one person that I was like, you know, I, I wonder if I should talk to, but then, you know, it's his last year and I don't want to, you know, so I, I never, I never did. I did send him the manuscript and he wrote a blurb, but I don't know if he read it or not. I, <laughs> I don't know. Like, and so that was the one, that was the one sort of relationship where I was kind of like, I was concerned how, how he would perceive that and also how others would perceive it as well. What do you think ultimately you want people to learn about you from reading this? I think people have been curious about my journey, about my life, about my upbringing, about a number of things. And, you know, like you said, I've been, I've been a public figure, I guess, since I was 18. And um, there's perception uh, a lot of times. And I think people have certain perceptions of, of uh, whatever that might be. But look, I, I'm, I'm real. I'm, I have, you know, I, I have insecurities. I have flaws. I had self-doubt. I had things I had to overcome. Uh, I also, and I want this to be pure, but I think the injury ordeal. And I think, I don't think people understood, you know, if that happened now, I think we know everything. And, you know, people would be aware and understanding what's going on. And, and certainly we've relaxed a little bit on the whole injury ordeal and workload and resting and so on and so forth. But I don't know. I just felt like I had something to say and I felt like people think they know who you are. So hopefully this is a chance for them to know you even better and know you're being vulnerable, being real, being honest. And a book just gives you an opportunity to share the totality, I guess, of who you are and what you've experienced. I guess, you know, along the same lines of things that would be looked at so much differently Luckily, you know, being from uh, Detroit and seeing the success the team has had, obviously, in the 80s with the bad boys and then again in the mid 2000s with Chauncey and Rip and all those guys. Let me tell you, had that success not happened when I read about, I should say, the Pistons lack of recruitment of you and trying to get you to stay. Man, I'm telling you, I could have called up to the organization right there like we really did this? Like, are you serious? Like, that's inconceivable to me now. You know, you were a franchise player, somebody that should have been the cornerstone for the Pistons franchise for like 15, 20 years, like easy. And to see how much differently people approach recruiting athletes then versus now is like, 
crazy to me. You know, I, I think Shaq kind of went through that. He went through the same thing in Orlando because you talked about that, that they actually thought it wasn't a good idea to pay him a hundred million dollars. And now you look at that, it's like one of the most bonehead decisions you could possibly think of. And even with you, with all that you had achieved and just this, I mean, you were one of the biggest stars in the league and to see them be so passive about trying to keep you, it, man, I was kind of heated for about a good 20 minutes reading that. Well, first of all, let me say about Shaq. So 96, I'm with him at the Olympics. We're in Orlando preparing for Atlanta Olympics. We're training at Disney. And uh, there was an article in the Sentinel, your old employer. And uh, they're saying there's a, there's a survey about Shaq and should they pay him or not? And the majority was like, no, let him go. And so I remember being on the bus with Shaq and he was like in disbelief, like literally he was in disbelief. And, you know, here I am, I'm in the East. I'm like, we got to get this dude out of the East. Like, let's get him, get him over to the West. I'm like, dude, you should leave and blah, blah, blah. I'm in his ear. And when he went to LA, I was like, yes, like this, you know, but you know, it was, we, I don't know, like it, it, the whole Detroit thing. So first of all, I wanted to be in Detroit. Like I wanted to be there. I probably had the worst workout pre-draft workout in the history of someone going and working out for the number one pick. Milwaukee had the number one. Like, I'm like, I'm going to make sure they don't pick me. I had the worst attitude. I didn't go hard. I didn't want to be there. My agent was like, you need to go. Like, this is out of respect. But I wanted to be in Detroit. And then part of that was they had won. They had recently won. They understood winning. I watched them, you know, during those years. And so that, that to me was important. And I, I wanted to be in Detroit my whole career. Like that was that was the plan. I lived there year round. I looked at people like, you know, like Dave Bing, Vinny Johnson. Uh, I even think at the time Lambeer was doing some Lambeer packaging. Like I, I knew the, the auto industry. There were opportunities there. Like I just like that was it. Like that was the end all be all. When to me and I got married, we were looking at houses. Um, it never crossed my mind that I was going to leave. And so a lot of things happen and the injury and, and then certain things. And, and, you know, just, I don't know. I, I think that decision, I think it was the right decision at the time. I do think though, the mistake I made was being emotional when I made that decision. And I was pissed. I was pissed off that a doctor told one of our coaches that, you know, was, or, or was implying that I was making this up or manufacturing. It. And, you know, that rubbed me the wrong. Now, look, obviously, Detroit went on, had great success and, and, and so on and so forth. But I don't know. It was just a weird feeling. Like, I didn't feel like they I didn't feel like Joe. Like, I, I and that maybe in a way hurt a little bit because, you know, I played with him. Like, that was someone who, you know, I, I laced him up with and looked up to. And um, and so, you know, maybe I interpreted things wrong or differently. but. You know, my goal was to be there. And look, when Detroit went in 04, like I was I was genuinely happy for the team. Like I wasn't like upset or whatever. Like I I was a piston. Like I, you know, I went in the Hall of Fame as a piston. Like that's that's who I am. And so and I almost went back. Like I almost went back after I left Orlando, but I didn't want to ruin the memories I had. I knew I was a shell of myself. I wasn't the same. I wanted those six years for me to kind of stand on their own and not ruin that by coming back and being a shell of myself. That was an interesting off season. And if I never had gotten hurt and if that had been 
handled maybe a little bit differently, I never would have left. What was the the what if that was the hardest for you to kind of get over when you look at your career? I was on this trajectory to, you know, look, you talk about retired, you know, being retired. And I say, you know, as a retired athlete, you're, re- you're a recovering narcissist. And to be an athlete, to be at that level uh, or any level, like you have to have some narcissistic tendencies. It's about you. It's all about you. you work out when you eat, when you sleep. Okay, we can travel here. We can get married at this time. Like it's all, everything centers around you. And so for me, it was all about like, like I used to look up at Isaiah's jersey before every game. And Isaiah was always good to me, always good. I had Isaiah as one of my presenters at the, at the Hall of Fame and Shriver Ceremony. So he, even as I came in after he left, I felt like he always wanted me to succeed. Always. And you don't always get that. Sometimes you get people with egos and they don't really want to see you do well. Like I always felt like Isaiah, I felt like Isaiah wanted me to surpass him. Like that's how I genuinely felt. And so that was the inspiration. That was the motivation. And that's what I was chasing. And so I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. I mean, I do think losing Allen Houston hurt us, losing him for nothing and then losing sort of betting the farm on, on, on the late Brian Williams, Bison Dele, who was incredibly talented, but didn't really love the game. And I think none of us were equipped at dealing with someone who I think it's safe to say had some mental health deal ordeals or issues. And that would be more embraced now. And I think the resources would be available to deal with that. And so that explains a lot that, you know, we were, it was taboo to even talk about mental health back then. So losing both of those guys for, 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 for nothing, like that really, I think, slowed down the momentum that we were having early, at least early in my time there. But, you know, I would have stayed there and I would have tried and who knows what would have happened. But, you know, I mean, it, you can't cry over spilled milk, but that was my goal, like to, to be in one spot, to retire in that spot, to move on to something else in that city when my career was done. That was, you know, as, as Tamia says, you know, you make plans and God laughs. And um, and he laughed on that one. So, but that was what I was thinking at the time. I don't, I don't even know if I answered your question, but. No, no, you did. Um, because I know that at least definitely for a lot of Detroiters, it was such a big, you know, what if, because, you know, you were the bridge to the next generation. And I think it's funny because me and my husband were talking about this. I was like, man, people. Uh, Cause I lived through it. People would like forget about what a big deal you were. I mean, I had the feelers. <laughs> you had me rocking feelers too. <laughs> All right. Like uh, you were, you were the one of the guys that they branded as being the next Michael Jordan in terms of marketing, in terms of ability, all that, like that was what was placed um, kind of on your shoulders. Now you have uh, two grown daughters, right? They're both adults, right? No, no. One's uh, in high school. Oh, okay. You still have one left. Okay. Yep. All right. Because I thought that, I was thinking that they both were. Uh, your daughter, Myla, she made her MMA debut last year. So what <laughs> what has this experience been like for you as a father to watch your daughter be in one of the most physical, roughest, all that kind of sport that uh, that that's out there? You know, it's been... So first of all, you, your children and and their achievements and accomplishments, like it's it's far greater than anything you ever do. And so following them, whether it's, you know, 
piano lessons or soccer games or whatever the case may be, like you get more excited for that. Uh, hence Tamia uh, and her, you know, being a little league parent. But, um, you know, Milo wanted to take jujitsu about three years ago. You know, we thought it was great. She's a senior in high school. You get a chance to, you know, you're going to go off to college, learn how to have some self-defense. Like, fine, we're perfectly with it. And so she just, she started and she just fell in love with it and, and did it every day, you know, and then through COVID, you know, we're in Florida, not much slowed down during COVID. And she continued with that and really found a passion and a love for it. But that's say, okay, you just start teaching it to kids. He's, you know, getting more belts, whatever. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, I want to fight. And that's when like her mom and I were like, okay, let, like, let's. And so I think I, I accepted it before Tamia did. And I think the way I looked at it as if that's what she's passionate about and that's what she loves, then as a parent, you got to embrace it. And if somebody tried to deny me, you know, basketball or deny her singing, you know, like it, it would be unfair. And so, you know, I took her, I took her to an MMA fight and this was before COVID. And I'm thinking, you know, she goes and sits up close in person and she sees it, you know, she's going to be like, oh, I don't want to do that. And, and you know, and, and think otherwise. So we get home late at night. I had a buddy who's the general counsel, went to school with at Duke. So he hooks us up. We're back, like all of it. We're right there. So we get home. We get home like two in the morning. And I'm like, so Milo, what did you think? She says, I think I could be a champion. And I'm like, oh, no. Like, you know, I'm, I'm you know, this is not working. But you know what? I, I applaud her. Like, I admire her dedication. I admire how much she's put into it. It is not an easy path. But she wants it. And she's going for it and she's not afraid. And she put it out there. Like she put it out there early. Like she wanted to do this. And so, yeah, I mean, now we'll say this, her first fight. So the fight's in Lakeland, Florida, about an hour from where we live. So she's already there with her team. And, you know, to me and I were driving and we're driving out high four and the music's not on, nothing's on the radio. We're not saying a word to each other. And so like, we could just feel like it was just like this nervousness, like, what are we doing? And what are we about to witness? And so we get there and there's a bar. And so we start down in the Roman Cokes. So we're like, I mean, we probably each had eight Roman Cokes. And so, 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 uh, so by then we're, we're good. Like we're now we're like, you know, we're, we're, we're ready. Like we're ready for a fight. And, uh, and the young lady she was fighting uh, who had fought before her, came in the ring and had studs in her ears. And so that's a big no-no. And so Myla's in the ring. She already came out. Her walkout music was Rick Ross, The Devil Is Alive. So I knew she had a chance. And so she's in the ring. And so now, like, I'm thinking the girl's trying to stall her. And so at this point now, we're like, like we're like, man, beat, like, you know, we're, we're <laughs> that, you know, we're, we're over here, like, kind of like, you know, because we we're a little sauce, you know, and, uh, but, but she went out there and won. Like she and she's tactical and she she loves it. Like and you know we've taken her to a bunch of UFC fights. I still struggle with it, but I admire what she's doing and how how hard she works at it. I just want her to retire undefeated. <laughs> go to go to Floyd Mayweather route <laughs> where you or, or retire after being one and zero, right? <laughs> right. But she's. I mean, she's got a whole plan. She wants to fight. She wants to open up a series of gyms. She feels like it gives credibility when you have 
been in the octagon. Obviously, she wants to go all the way and do all that. But so anyway, she's the quietest, sweetest, kindest. Like she is. I mean, of all the people, you know, that's the last person you would think would, would get in the octagon and fight. So <laughs> go figure. But got the heart of a killer. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, great. Before I get you out of here, I got a series of fun questions to ask you. It's a game I play with every guest on the podcast. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this. I give you two choices and you got to pick one. All right. So all right. this is what a controversy happens. I'm just warning you. Okay. All right. All right. All right. First up, Candy Girl or Mr. Telephone Man? Candy Girl. No question. Candy Girl. So uh, one of the funnier stories you tell in the book about playing pickup with New Edition <laughs> in college. So we win the championship, 91. We come back. The next weekend, BD, Johnny Gill, Sweat, they're playing at the D-Dome in North Carolina. BBD wants to play basketball with us. We bet them before the game was, if we beat y'all, y'all got to bring us on stage. So, of course, we beat them. Now, we had on stage Christian Leitner, Brian Davis, Tony Lang, and, of course, myself. And we're dancing with their four dancers. And the music's playing. And we're literally dancing with their dancers on stage. Like, that was it. I win a championship and the next one with BBD. Better trash talker, Michael Jordan or Larry Bird? Larry Bird. But I heard he was pretty legendary. (laughs) Michael didn't say nothing to me. Like, Michael never, like, he never said anything. So, we'll go with Larry. Which level of difficulty was higher? The pass you made to Christian Leitner, famous turnaround shot that won the game against Kentucky, or the shot itself? Which was more difficult? Oh, the pass. Come on, man, like a little, a little turnaround jump shot from the free throw line. Like you can do that. Like anyone can do that. But you can't make the pa- you can't make the shot if you don't have to pass. A good answer, because I'm like, if that pass, if that pass yeah. is not pinpoint, it, it, this might be it might have been a whole different story that season. <laughs> or it, it was definitely going to be one bigger uh, sort of accomplishment. You getting more all star votes than Michael Jordan or you crossing over Michael Jordan? Uh, getting more votes. I think getting more votes. That was, uh, I don't know. That's a good one. Cause you didn't give Mike the business on that crossover though. Yeah. Maybe the crossover, maybe the crossover. <laughs> that was, uh, I, you know, he was, he, it wasn't real Mike. It was number 45 Mike. So, you know, I'll give him a pass. And finally stranger in my house or spend my life with you. <sighs> I like spend my life, you know, cause, cause everybody thought that like, man, what is Grant doing to this poor girl <laughs> that's making her write these songs? <laughs> right. And so, you know, it's a great song. Uh, It's got a great sort of flip in the script at the end. Probably did better than Spend My Life, but Spend My Life is, you know, it's more positive, more, you know, more upbeat, more reflective of me maybe in a way, you know, but Stranger My House, people were like, man, hey, there's something going on over there. Has Tamia ever written a a song that was expressly about you, that she told you? Yeah, so she day one, was a song that was on one of her recent albums. And, you know, I like to think I've been somewhat of the inspiration for some of the songs. So I'll say this, that writing process, it's like, I respect that the creative process It's almost spiritual in a way. And so I, I give space. Like I don't get myself involved in that. Uh, I've, I've heard her sing and record, but usually she's already written a song. I don't like to be there while she's creating or writing. Uh, but I was there when she wrote So Into You. 
And particularly I was with the second verse and it was crazy how nonchalant the second verse, like literally she's like, I got to go to the studio and record the second verse. And I'm like, well, do you have it? She's like, no. And literally, um, like she had to leave in like 15 minutes. And so she's putting the song, she puts it on, she's playing it. It's the first time I heard a song. And the second verse, like literally, I mean, it, it couldn't have been five minutes. And, and so I'd like to think that, you know, we were early in our relationship, whatever, that, that I was the inspiration behind that classic song. But maybe I wasn't. Who knows? Maybe it was something else. <laughs> I will say this. She watched a lot of Lifetime. And Lifetime movies gave a lot of the inspiration behind some of the, the storylines in her songs. Stranger in My House is definitely a Lifetime movie. Definitely. Oh, no question. No question. It might be a two, the sequel, the first movie and the sequel. So right. definitely a movie. We're going to make that the headline anyway. Grand Hill, inspiration behind I'm So Into You. We're going to go with that. I like that. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Well, uh, listen, Grant, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me. Congratulations on the book. I mean, you're, you do so many things you know you got an ownership stake in the hawks you you know obviously are on, on tv and you know getting the to, to be our voice of the final four for this uh generation and uh, of course you're a huge collector of african-american art i mean you are like really a a renaissance man and it's just uh, a pleasure to see you finally you know kind of really telling your story from start to finish so i love the book it was great i wouldn't just tell you that especially being a writer but it was a really good read so i hope you're proud of it um, Oh, I appreciate your kind words and uh, I am proud of it and I uh, appreciate you having me and uh, I had a chance to talk a little bit and catch up and certainly uh, proud of what you've done with your career and you're a cultural media icon, mogul, all those things. And uh, it's fun to see you continue to shine and ascend to, to new heights. So congrats to you and thank you. All right. Um, well, I'll receive it. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I thank you for the kind words. Um, all right, y'all. Grant is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Very disturbing news out of Atlanta last week. The rapper Trouble was shot and killed inside a woman's apartment outside of Atlanta. That in itself bothersome. But the senseless murder of a talented artist isn't the only reason I'm fucking bothered about this situation. Now, Trouble's killer is in custody right now. He's been charged with several counts, including murder, of course. And even though he decided to kill someone over nothing. He isn't the sole person being blamed here. The young woman that Trouble was visiting is taking as much, if not more, of the blame than the actual shooter. The police characterized this incident as a, quote, domestic situation because Trouble's killer is an ex-boyfriend of the woman who he was with. According to the arrest warrant, the killer broke into this woman's apartment well after three in the morning and upon seeing her in bed with trouble, he punched her in the face and he and trouble started fighting. And that's when he shot trouble in the chest and killed him. 
Also, according to the arrest warrant, the woman told police that her ex-boyfriend had previously punched her in the face. So that wasn't the first time he had done that. Now, you would think that there would be 100 percent sympathy for this woman. But instead, a number of people are actually blaming her for Trouble's death because in their minds, she should have warned Trouble that she had an abusive ex-boyfriend. Others have said it's her fault because she should have waited to date somebody else because she should have known that her abusive ex probably wouldn't be able to handle her moving on so quickly. Because according to the Internet detectives, the two, the killer and this woman, had only been broken up for a week. As if any of this is her fucking problem. It's just another kind of exhausting example of how the default position is to figure out a way to blame women for the actions of men. This woman was in her own apartment entertaining a guest of her choosing as she is free to do as a single grown ass free ass black woman. I don't give a damn if she got with trouble two hours after she broke up with somebody. That's why it's called a breakup. You're agreeing to move on. Besides, what was she supposed to do? Constantly manage the emotions of a violent man she was no longer with? You know, what's fucked up about this is that people want shit both ways. Unfortunately, when women are in abusive situations like this, people will judge them and ask them, well, why doesn't she just leave? In this case, the woman left her abuser. And now the narrative is, well, why does she move on so fast? Because she knows he's abusive and that could trigger him. Seriously, do some of y'all know how fucked up y'all sound? I get that emotions are high because this is the murder of a beloved rapper who's worked with The Weeknd, Drake, Gucci Mane, among others. Whenever somebody famous dies tragically, people are always looking for somebody to blame. In this case, instead of blaming this woman who also is a victim in this, blame the killer and the pervasiveness of black women being killed by intimate partners. According to a study by the Violence Policy Center, nine out of 10 black women are murdered by men they know, and usually with a gun. Of the black women who were killed by someone they know, 60% were wives, common law wives, ex-wives, or girlfriends of the person that killed them. Be mad at that. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours. Revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. On behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music, you can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Ha. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. 
Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven five and twenty one. Wave goodbye to forty five. Don't make me tell you fifty eleven times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was.